paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Dan Mervish, the director and co-writer of 18 and a Half. No, it has nothing to do with Fellini, nor does it have anything to do with John Holmes. It is the story of the famous 18 and a Half minute gap in Nixon's tapes. Kind of a comedy thriller all about politics in 1974. Had a great time with it, and I hope you have a great time listening to this interview. We talked a few years ago when you were talking about Bernard and Huey, and I'm so curious where 18 and a half came from. It really stemmed almost directly from Bernard and Huey. The The last day of shooting that was uh, was in New York. We, we shot for a couple of days in New York on that. And that coincided almost exactly with election day in 2016, the presidential election 2016. And then the next day, I was taking dailies out to show Jules Pfeiffer, who had written Bernard and Huey. And he lives in Shelter Island or did then anyway, and which is at the tip of Long Island, uh, kind of near the Hamptons. Um, so I went out there and, you know, it's about a three hour drive. And inevitably we start talking about the election and Trump and uh, everyone's freaking out or some people are freaking out. Some people are happy either way there. Everyone's freaking out. Right. Uh, you know, he had won a Pulitzer prize for his cartoons if, in the village voice, largely for his Nixon Watergate cartoons. So, Inevitably, the conversation goes to comparisons to, uh, you know, what was it like uh, during Watergate and Nixon and will the Republic survive and how many impeachments could there possibly be? That sort of thing. Anyway, and then 
after I left and, and my buddy Terry was with me uh, and Terry lives out there across the ferry from Shelter Island in this place called Greenport, also on the tip of Long Island. And Terry runs this great motel called the Silver Sands Motel that his grandparents had built in the, in the 50s and 60s. And Terry's been running it for about 10 years. And he's an indie film guy himself. So he's been smart about keeping it really vintage looking. And he does a ton of fashion shoots out there for like Vogue and Harper's. He rents it out. But he said, no one's ever shot a feature here. And I'm looking around and, 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 oh, and he said, and we're closed in the winter, you know, so the cast and crew can stay here. And I'm like, well, this place is like preserved in amber in 1974, you know, uh, and we were just talking about Watergate. So let's make a Watergate movie here, you know? So then it was, you know, a, a challenge to figure out, well, how do you, how do you pigeonhole a, a movie set you know, events that are normally we think of being set in Washington, D.C. at a seaside resort on the tip of Long Island. Well, the first thing you do is you say it's in Maryland. <laughs> and um, so we did that. And then I collaborated with a great uh, screenwriting partner, my friend Daniel Moya. And coincidentally, his aunt and uncle owned a um, a diner just down the street from the from the Silver Sands motel. And it was this vintage looking diner. And I was like, oh, my gosh, well, that's two locations. Now we have to make a film. <laughs> So that's kind of the proximate reason why we made this thing. But I, I'd had Watergate on the mind for a long time. I, I majored in history and poli sci. I, I knew a couple people tangentially involved with Watergate over the years. And, and I was a Senate speechwriter uh, for a couple of years in D.C. So I really had always wanted to do something kind of D.C.-based, Washington-based, Watergate-based. Um, so this, this presented itself with a great opportunity. Yeah, I was so curious why you chose a period piece. I mean, obviously other than the setting, but there's always just so many challenges, the vehicles, the outfits, the hair, all that, but having those settings must've been such a godsend. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, um, you know, you, uh, you've seen Bernard and Huey and you know that, um, you know, in that film we did about 10% of it was, was shot period. Yeah, it was a different period. It was, it was like the late eighties, but still, you know, what that experience taught me is that not to be afraid of shooting period films on a low budget indie budget. Like if you're smart about it and about the costumes and the war, you know, and the settings, you can do it. I'm actually in the garage where I shot the uh, the subway scene in New York, where we shot a, a 1989 New York subway in my Culver City garage. Um, but, you know, if you do it the right way, you can do it. So I think that kind of, in my mind, made it a lot easier to contemplate even thinking about doing a period film and, and, you know, and look, 90% of, of the heavy lifting is really the locations. And if you've got those, you're 90% of the way there. And what's great about the silver sands is that Terry has a friend that's run a, a film camp there every summer. And so there's a lot of extra props lying around like period appropriate props or from other sh fashion shoots that have been there and things like that. And so we have a great production designer, Monica Dabrowski, but it was for her, it was a lot of it was just a matter of like finding things on the property itself and putting them all in the right places at the, at the right times. And, and actually one of the biggest things was building a spiral staircase that had been disconnected like 20 years ago and just kind of shoved in a loft. And that took like three days to rebuild. <laughs> it was a big part of her, her job. And, the, and then getting, um, you know, period things like reel-to-reel uh, -reel players, which we were able to find enough of them on eBay that are still working. And, uh, and once we had those kind of the hero props, you know, we were able to, 
to figure it out from there. And then we had a wonderful uh, costume designer, uh, Sarah Kogan, who who actually collects old patterns, old you know paper patterns for for wardrobe. And so she would make new costumes like out of thin air, pretty much um, using these old patterns. So that that really helped sell everything. Tell me a little bit about your cast, because it is just amazing. I, I love Richard Kind. So whenever he shows up in anything and then your quote unquote radio cast as well, the tape cast. So, well, Richard, uh, again, you remember is in Bernard and Huey, my last film. And, uh, you know, it was a great pleasure working with him there. He was the one person that we kind of wrote that part specifically for him, not knowing for sure that we'd get him because he's so busy. It was a matter of whether he would it would fit in his schedule, and, and it did ultimately. And so it was great working with him again. And John Magaro had worked with him once before. He, he knew him. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a terrific cast. I mean, the live cast is, is, is Richard and, and John Magaro, uh, Willa Fitzgerald, who was a lot of people know from Reacher, you know, that was just on Amazon. But this was before we shot that. But she had been in a, a little film that um, my buddy Lucky McKee had shot, and he re- recommended her a lot. Um, and Kelly Reichardt had recommended John from working with him on First Cow. And then we got the incredible Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin played kind of the older swingers in the film. And they were cast just 36 hours before. Uh, yeah, we had had other people drop out. And, and this was the... We pretty much by this point needed to get a, a New York-based um, cast because we were shooting, well, number one, for budget reasons, you know, fly people across the country. But number two, we started shooting March 3rd, 2020. What could possibly go wrong in March of 2020? People were starting to get a little paranoid about this pandemic that, you know, I'm sure will never hit the US, but of course it did. So we wound up actually shooting. We found out we were one of the last films shooting in North America. And I, I realized, wait a minute, what does everyone else know that we don't know? And so on our 11th day, we shut down and uh, we had four days left to go. And, and that kind of brings me to the next cast, the, the, um, the, uh, the voice actors. So we had uh, Bruce Campbell as Nixon, John Cryer as Haldeman, and uh, Ted Ramey as uh, General Al Haig. And so Bruce and John were actually the first two people cast in the film because it was really easy thing for them to say, oh, yeah, I'll do a couple hours voiceover work sometime in the next year in post-production. Yeah, sure, Dan, whatever. And uh, so it was easy to get them involved. And then, but then once the pandemic hit and we didn't know how long we would be on a pandemic pause or healthy hiatus, as I call it. Um, But a couple months into it, I realized, you know what, we had been planning on doing this, the voice performances in post-production but why don't we just do it now? Like everyone has Zoom now. Most of the actors had decent microphones at their houses. Uh, Bruce was in Oregon. John was in LA. Ted Ramey, who Bruce kind of brought him involved, got him involved. He was in Canada. And so in like, I think June of 2020, that's when we did those voice performances over Zoom. And it was great because it was a time, if you remember, that actors weren't acting. There were no films, no TV, no plays, not, you know, nothing. So everyone's going kind of stir-crazy. We were like, oh my gosh, we can do spend a few hours doing, like you said, kind of a radio play within the movie. And it was, it was really refreshing and invigorating for all of us to, to just be creative at that time when 
most people weren't. Um, meanwhile, I was editing the film and we were doing a lot of music because again, musicians around the world were kind of stuck. So we found a horn section in Mexico and a, a singer in Brazil, you know, well, she splits her time between LA and Brazil, but um, so we could get all these great people to collaborate on the, on the, on the music. And then six months later, we, we went back and um, by this point, the screen actors guild and directors guild had the COVID safe protocols in place. And we were able to, to finish out those last four days, finish the film. With those last four days, those were back in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, yeah. Everyone was able to get back to the silver sands, the, the entire crew, the entire cast. Um, that was, it was those scenes where we shot with a lot more cast. So that's when Richard kind was, a, was available. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman does a tiny cameo. I don't know if you've ever seen Lloyd in there. Um, Mahia Abney, uh, who'd been in black Panther, she was out there. And then the, the three hippies, um, uh, Sullivan Jones, who had just been uh, had done slave play in on Broadway in New York, and the twins Alana and Claire uh, Saunders. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so we actually had a fair number of people out there, and and then Vondi Curtis Hall and and Kathy Curtin, they came back for one more scene, and um, that they had left to do, and of course Willa and John. The smaller cast and the kind of limited locations, you could almost reset this as a stage play at some time in the future funny you should say that we we have actually been talking to a couple different theater companies about about doing that you know doing it as a play uh which i think would be a lot of fun glad you agree <laughs> you talked about the music and i was not sure at first when i was listening to the film if it was period appropriate or if it was new versions of older songs or what was going on there so i'm glad that you brought that up I have a couple kind of philosophical ideas about music and film. Number one, it's it's expensive on a low budget to to do like needle drop music, and and, and the temptation when doing a period film is to just you know let's put in the Rolling Stones and Credence and you know pay fifty thousand dollars each or whatever you know that's what Aaron Sorkin does or Tarantino or whoever. Just on a purely budgetary level, you can't afford that. But also, I feel like it is it's, it's kind of a creative crutch too. You know, it's more interesting and more specific to whatever your story is to do original music. So I have a great composer, Luis Guerra, who I worked with also on Bernard and Huey. And if you remember Bernard and Huey played a bunch of festivals, like 30 around the world. And I had gone to the Sao Paulo international festival with it, which I had an amazing time. It was before COVID. Right. And this was right around the time we were starting to work on the script. So I kind of had Brazil a little bit on my mind. I saw a lot of music or heard a lot of music when I was down there. So I thought, you know, why don't we come up with something that's period appropriate, which is to say late 60s, early 70s, because the characters, even though the, the, the film was set in 1974, the, the kind of swinger characters would still be listening to music that could have been from the late 60s or mid 60s even. And we thought, why don't we just kind of go Brazil, uh, go Brazil or go home, you know? And we went with a, with a mainly bossa nova kind of style of music. And, uh, and specifically, you know, there were a few songs that I wanted to. So I, I wrote the lyrics to the songs in English and then had a friend in Brazil translate them back into Portuguese. Um, because the other thing that I feel about music and film is that if you have lyrics in the same language as the dialogue, and if that's the same language that the audience speaks, so English in our case, it will intrinsically divide the attention span of the audience, which is not usually what you want. But if you have lyrics in a completely different language, say Portuguese, 
and everyone else is speaking English, then it just kind of your mind filters it out and you just think of it as, as more instrumental music. And so this was a nice way of doing that to have kind of, you know, these Portuguese songs just kind of pop up within the film every now and again. And then Luis, you know, knows a lot about Brazilian music and he has a lot of Brazilian musician friends in LA. We, we actually live in kind of a Brazilian, Luis and I live close together and it's, we're in a bit of a Brazilian enclave in LA. So there's a lot of Brazilian restaurants around here. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's great during world cup season, you know, but uh, anyway, so we found this great singer, uh, Caro Pierotto, who's Brazilian, but lives in LA and kind of goes back and forth. Um, and so she was able to sing in both in both Portuguese and English, but kind of the mandate for kind of our main theme song for, for Willa's character, Connie, uh, I wanted to come up with a song that sort of was felt a little bit like Girl from Ipanema, which was also recorded in Portuguese and English. So that we kind of use that as the model, but lyrically was a little bit more thematically like the theme from the Mary Tyler Moore theme song, being a bit more kind of early 70s feminist. And so that's what we came up with Brasilia Bella for that. During that six month gap, we had time. So we came up with a bunch of other songs and we decided, well, why don't the hippies listen to kind of Tropicalia, which is sort of like Brazilian psychedelia music. And so we wrote some songs for them that were lyrically tied to Brasilia Bella and the other ones that we'd already done, the, the, the other Bossa Nova ones. And, you know, and Luis says, and I trust him, you know, the nice thing about Bossa Nova and, and, and Tropicalia, especially this combination of them, was that they kind of lent themselves really well tonally to, you know, sometimes it's you can twist them into spy themes or thriller themes or comedic themes while still being true to the Bossa Nova beats and, and genre. So he had a lot of fun with working on that. And I'm happy to say the soundtrack just came out this week. And then we also did, because of course, everyone can, no one can see this on the radio or on a podcast, but we actually made a few flexi discs with two of our songs from a, that we have available. We're going to be selling them in some of the live screenings, but yeah, these were actually made in a Czech printing plant in the, in the Czech Republic that used to smuggle in rock and roll from the, during the cold war and print them onto uh, medical x-rays. Oh, right. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. So, because we wanted to do like a big vinyl, you know, soundtrack album, but there's a year long backlog on printing vinyl these days. But this check plant was available and we were like, well, I hope it doesn't get invaded by the Russians, but let's use that. So we got them out just in time. That's fantastic. Is this your first soundtrack? No, we've on my first film, Omaha, the movie, we did a soundtrack cassette tape on that one. You know, we, I mean, this is back in the mid nineties. Right. And, um, I think, and then open house, my real estate musical, we, that soundtrack is actually on Spotify. Remarkably enough, it is still floating around. I don't, don't know who's getting residuals on that, but it is still floating around and that, you know, there's a whole long story with the Academy and the best original musical category that we, uh, we were aiming for in 2004 with that film, but yeah. So we had a soundtrack CD and that was, it's, it's floating around digitally. So yeah, you can listen to that now. Maybe one of these days, Spotify will pay you all like 10 cents. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. There's not a lot of money in music, but you know, it's fun. I usually ask what was the most challenging thing about making a movie. And with <laughs> this one, it feels like you've already talked about several of the biggest challenges. What was the most rewarding thing about making this one? You know, it was a really collaborative process. Everybody got along really great, really well. All the actors, all the cast and crew, you know, we were all 
staying at this place, which was like winter camp. You know, we'd wrap at the end of the night. No one had to drive home. No one had to go home tired. And we'd all sit around and play with Willa's dog that she brought out there and drink product placement wine and eat product placement Omaha steaks. You know, we'd barbecue, you know, most nights. So it was really like, I was like, wow, this is, this is the civilized way to make a movie. You know, you go back to your own little room, use about, use your own bathroom, you know, all of which, by the way, turned out to be like pretty good COVID protection too. Like when, when the COVID protocols came out, we're like, oh yeah, we're doing a lot of this stuff already. We're about as remotely isolated in the bubble as you can get. And honestly, I mean, having gone through this experience of the the run up to COVID was kind of a bonding experience for all of us because we we had this shared paranoia about what was going on in the world and were we going to be the last people that we ever saw again and um, you know and and who, who, who which grip has the meatiest legs if we have to go full on you know zombie cannibal island and uh, yeah and it was it was really weird because between the sets that we were on and what was going on in the world, we felt like Gilligan's Island on, on the set of the Brady Bunch. I mean, it was very, very surreal, but I think it really did kind of bond us all together. And in fact, when we shut down about a third of the crew, so about six or seven folks on the crew, kind of the single Brooklyn types didn't have families to go back to. They stayed at the Silver Sands for two more months, you know, and then my cinematographer, she never left. She was there for six months because it was so comfortable. So it was so nice out there. And Terry was, was lovely and let them all stay out there because, and no one else was coming to hotels in those first couple of months. So it was really for them, you know, a real bonding experience, really, you know, for all of us really. And then, and then they were all there when I got back. And meanwhile, I learned to make sourdough over that six months. And so I had to quarantine for two weeks when I got back out there because I was the one person from LA. But there were these great cabins and I just baked sourdough every day for the two weeks. And then baked sourdough cinnamon rolls for, you know, for the cast and crew. And they, they loved it. So it was, it was a really good experience, you know, and then creatively, even though, yeah, I mean, it's horrible when a global pandemic strikes when you're making a movie, you know, and then we had to raise more money, which was not easy either. But meanwhile, I was editing the film, you know, we had about 80% of it in the can. And then creatively, we could, Daniel and I could look at the scenes that we still had left to shoot and kind of tweak the dialogue a little bit and like, oh, okay, we need this little bit. We don't need that. Luis and I could write an extra song for Sullivan, you know, who, who's on the, he's, you know, a day before he comes out there, he says, oh, should I bring my guitar? I was like, yeah, bring your guitar, man. And, uh, and I was like, called up Luis that night. Luis, we need a song for Barry the hippie, you know? So, and, you know, we, we all cobbled that together and the cast came back. They're like, hang on a second. Is this a musical now? And I'm like, well, not quite, but it's leaning towards that way. So, so yeah, we just kind of had fun with it, you know, and the actors just all really embraced their parts and, and the experience. So when would you say the movie was completely finished? We had the world premiere in at the Woodstock Film Festival. So last early October, like October 1st, 2021. And yeah, it was kind of finished right before that. Although that said, we just did a quick remix and a quick adjustment to get our MPA rating of a PG-13. So uh, I had to go back into the sound mix a week ago, <laughs> which was not so fun. But anyway, but we got it done. Everyone's happy. We have PG-13. I like to, as soon as I finish a film, I like to start playing it at film festivals. You know, I, I didn't want to wait around for a Sundance that was probably going to get canceled. And it did, you know, live screenings, all their live screenings got canceled. So when Woodstock invited us, I was like, yeah, let's go for it. 
because the last fall was kind of this weird trough between the Delta variants and 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 the uh, and and Omicron, and so there was like this two and a half month window where film festivals were live and they were having live screenings. Some were still hybrid and 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 some were still virtual, but but we we specifically aim for the live ones because I you know believe strongly film should be experienced on a big screen with an audience all coughing on each other and getting sick. But so we played about 10 festivals in the fall. It was, it was Woodstock, it was Anchorage, it was Rome, Georgia, yeah, but also Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Luis went down and represented the film there. And I went to Spain in Gijón, Spain for our European premiere and Whistler, Canada. So we, and we picked up some awards along the way and we got distribution at around that time based on the success of the film from those early festivals from a London-based company. And, and then that kind of led to us getting a US-based company for the theatrical release. And then meanwhile, there was a kind of the spring trough where we played as many festivals, you know, between Omicron and World War III. And, you know, we've tried to fit in you know, I went to the Manchester Film Festival in England and and won a Best Director Prize, which was great, and and Barbados and a bunch of other U.S. festivals as well. So, and then now we're trying to do the theatrical screening. You know, between this Friday, May twenty seventh, it opens in New York and L.A. and a couple other places, and then June third, it really opens. You know, fifty five theaters, sixty theaters around the country. Which is great because we have a nice little trough now between, you know, sort of the BA2 variant and, and monkeypox, you know, when the next time the theaters are going to get shut down. So, so see it while you can. This could be the last movie anyone of us ever sees in a movie theater. <laughs> so, but it is in, in theaters only, at least for the first five weeks. And then, and then it's getting a, a digital release after that. But yeah, it's like Memoria or, or Top Gun that way. Very similar to both those films. Oh, yeah. Well, I can definitely see the similarities. <laughs> it is funny that you come up with the idea back in what 2016 and now it's still as appropriate as it was in 1974 and that was part of my thinking too about doing a period any period film really is that but especially one with political resonance is that it will hopefully you know because if, if you try to do an indie film or, or even a studio film that is like super specific to what is going on right now with whoever's president and whatever scandals and impeachments are going on, you're never going to get it out in time. Like circumstances are going to change just way too fast. But if you do a period film, especially one looking back 50 years, and this is June 17th is the 50th anniversary of Watergate, um, you know, it's always going to have some version of resonance and relevance to whatever's going on right now in, in our own lives, but also not just in our lives, but also internationally. I mean, when we showed it in Brazil, they, they were all reading into it. Oh, this is just like Bolsonaro. And, and in Spain, they're like, oh yeah, this reminds us of Franco. And, and in, in Manchester, they were like, oh, this is just like Boris Johnson and the scandal he's going through now, like sort of this goofy scandal that's made worse by the cover-up. It's like, so everyone can kind of read something different into it, which is fine. And, you know, and, and the thing about this is you don't really need to know anything about Watergate going into it. I mean, I did, but my writing partner didn't. And so we, we did a lot of research for it, but it's, uh, and it kind of takes off from these plausible things that were going on, but you don't have to do a lot of research before going in. So you can just go and have fun with it. And we've shown it to like really young audiences, you know, college students and who don't know anything about Watergate and they, and they loved it. I think because they don't have preconceived ideas about what they think Watergate is from other movies and other TV shows. You are never one to just kick back and sit on your laurels. So what are you working on as well? Not much. I mean, I did 
during the same time of, of making the film, I also wrote a book, because why not? The Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, the second edition. I'd written the first one right after my last two films ago, Between Us. So I had a lot of material from Bernard and Huey. And, and also there's a whole chapter on 18 and a half in here, which is fun to like write a chapter about the making of a film and then put it in a book before the film even comes out. And then I was able to, the reason I have this mic is I recorded the audiobook, And so that actually just came out a couple months ago. Yeah, which is good because I get a bigger percentage of the cut on the audiobook than I do on the, on the print edition. And because of the book, though, because it's, it's through Focal Press and Rutledge, which is an academic publisher, I wound up getting invited to speak at a lot of college campuses. So I do a lot of guest lecturing. I think in the fall, I'm going to be combining that with screenings of 18 and a half on, on campuses. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And then as we talked about already, there's talk of, of, of turning it into a play. There's some chatter of maybe turning it into an episodic TV series. I mean, it's mainly me chattering about it, but you know, it could happen. So yeah. And then the soundtrack. So this is one of those projects that I, you know, and, and again, because we all still get along with each other, which does not always happen. And, and it's all original, you know, IP as, as they, as is the parlance in, uh, in Hollywood to, to say, you know, we can keep doing stuff with, with the world of 18 and a half. So why not? So I don't know what's next other than still plugging away at 18 and a half because and then the, the Blu-ray and DVD are going to come out in September. It's going to start airing on airplanes in August all over the world. So that's starting to happen. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of work I still need to do. We're still, we're still working on our New York state tax credit. There's a lot of accounting that goes into <laughs> these films that nobody really talks about and it's not fun, but if no one else does it, it's got to get done. And then, yeah. And then who knows, maybe award season, you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's gonna. It, this is gonna keep me busy for for another year at least. <laughs> so, for those people that want to see this theatrically, where's the best place for them to go to to see where it's playing? So, yeah, the easiest thing is to go to our own website, which is the number one eight, so eighteen, and then spelled out a n d half and half movie, <laughs> all spelled out dot com, and we have a list of screenings. Or you can try to find your local listings or Fandango or Box Office Mojo, like one of those sites. They're not too accurate though, because they don't, they have like the big, you know, multiplexes, but they don't have a lot of the art house screens. We're kind of playing in a bit of both. So yeah, check your local listings as they say, but yeah, you can go to our, our website for that. And then on social media, we're at, uh, at 18 and a half movie or at 18 and a half on Twitter or 18 and a half movie on Facebook and Instagram. But if you still can't find it, because it is a little complicated with the fraction, I don't know how Fellini did it with eight and a half, but, but he did figure one thing out, which is that if you do start with a number, you're always at the head of the alphabet. So that's smart. So otherwise, just do search for me, Dan Mervish, M-I-R-V-I-S-H, and, and then you can kind of piece it together where, where it's playing. But yeah, but it's going to be in theaters and I'm going to be running around doing a lot of Q&As. We've got a big premiere in DC next week and uh, premieres in by coastally curious premieres in New York and LA this Friday. Yeah. Depending on when this, when people listen to this, cause as I know, you know, once you post it, you know, they could listen this week or months from now and hopefully still be just as valuable. It'll be out there. So yeah, maybe by the time someone listens to it, it'll be on their Google contact lenses in 20 years or, you know, some other weird thing, but I'm glad you liked it, Mike. 
because uh, I know you've got a discerning eye. So I was like, I always got nervous sending you my films. I'm like, oh, wow, Mike's, Mike's serious. He's the real is the real thing you have like british people on your podcast and stuff like that so that's how you can tell it's the, the sign of quality i know it really is one well, you have a good microphone too so yeah well finally uh, yeah but thank you for having me on and yeah any did i probably answer more questions than you need you'll be cutting this down to quick 10 minutes i'm sure So many 
thousand and thousand of lives have gone in vain, and not to mention the grief of their family. So the only way we could stop him from causing more pain is to bring back our men. We said to bring them back immediately, and they gone back, Uncle Sam, and this useless war in Vietnam. Tell us what you're fighting for. We want you bring back women from Vietnam. We said to have some consideration, Uncle Sam. Get women out Vietnam. We want you to stop this war now in Vietnam. We say to start the escalation, Uncle Sam. We want back women. 